Thank you, Nate. Thank you, uh, team. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central. If you're a guest of us, my name is uh, Craig, and I get the privilege of, of just taking uh, the word this morning and uh, just leading us uh, through this. We've reached uh, week number three of our series entitled Impoverished, and today we're going to talk about the children. If there's a big idea today, or if there are big ideas today, they are these. Firstly, if you want to change the way you see the world, change the way you see the children. Secondly, if you want to change the way that you view yourself, change the way you view the children. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it, please, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to work through verses 1 through 5 today. And uh, I want us to, to focus in on what happens here. If you need a copy of the Scriptures and you haven't got one, you'd like that just to follow along with what we're doing. All you need to do is to raise your hands in the air, and our ushers would be delighted to give you a copy of the Scriptures so you can see the Word for yourself on the page. Again, just raise your hands in the air, and once you have those Bibles, you can turn to page 984, 984. Now, as you're turning there, let me, let me set the scene here. Matthew is a gospel that is written on the premise, on the basis of a very Jewish foundation. It is written in an unmistakably Jewish way. The teachings of Jesus are formulated and gathered together into five unmistakable sections. Matthew is intentional about this. He's done it this way because he wants this Gentile and increasingly Gentile church, the Jewish Gentile church, to know the foundations upon which their faith is built Jesus teaches five times because he is the new Moses. The, the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, begin with the five books of Moses called the Pentateuch. And so what we're going to look at today is this third teaching of Jesus. And I want you to note as we begin here how this teaching begins. It begins in verse 1 with these words. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, some of you familiar with the Scriptures already, your mind is going to different places. You think of the time when the mother of James and John, the wealthy guys, went to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you make it possible for my kids to sit on your left and your right? You may be thinking of other times where the disciples are battling for prestige. Matthew eliminates all of this. That's what he does. When you read his miracle stories, he gets rid of stuff. Matthew is a long gospel, but he gets rid of the stuff that cloud. What happens here is Matthew wants us to realize what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. He's eliminated the people conversation. He just wants the Jesus conversation. This isn't about people. This is about Jesus. What does Jesus say about greatness? And then it goes on in, in verses 2 through 5. Look at this. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, 
Whenever you read a therefore, you ask what it's there for. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now look at verse 5. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Notice Jesus has shifted the conversation a little bit. Whoever welcomes a little child like this welcomes me. Now, the first question was, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus brings in a little child, and he says, whoever welcomes a child like this, whoever humbles themselves like this, is great in the kingdom and also welcomes me. Whenever we seek a deeper truth from the text, there are a number of things we need to do. Now, in the church, we're preoccupied and fascinated with word studies. If we want to understand what is truly going on in a text, we usually jump into the words and the meaning of the words. And, and, and that's more than fine. It's totally appropriate. But students of the word will tell you that only 20% of a meaning of a text that you're trying to understand comes from the words. 80% of the meaning of the text actually comes from three things. It'll come from history, it'll come from geography, what happened there, and it will come from social context, what was happening around that thing. If we want to understand greatness in the kingdom, if we want to understand the way that God views the world, we need to understand children and we need to see what was going on in the heart of Jesus and what was happening in the hearts of the disciples as they looked at this little child. Because the meaning of this text is not in the words, the meaning of the text is in the context. You see, in Jesus' day, in both the Grecian world, the Greek worldview, and the Roman worldview, children were considered to be a disposable commodity, easily discarded, insignificant. They would be treated as a slave, some would say, others would say even less than a slave. If you don't understand what is happening right now, you need to recognize that Jesus is challenging the way the world viewed children. See, in Jesus' day, in the Greek and, uh, Grecian world and in the Roman world, when a child was born, the midwife would have the baby, not literally, of course, have the baby in their hand. They would then take the baby to the patriarch of the family. That may be the dad, but more often than not, it wasn't. It could be the grandfather. It could be a benevolent uncle. Remember, back then, families and generations of families would often live together. They would take the child to the patriarch. They would put the, patri the baby on the floor in front of the patriarch. They would take a step back, and they would watch to see what the patriarch would do. If the patriarch wanted to keep the child, they, he would bend down and he would pick the child up and he would give them back. 
If the patriarch didn't want to keep the child, he would simply turn away and walk away. And in this moment, what happened was one of two things. If the child was deformed, if there was a deformity, typically what would happen is that child would be picked up by the midwife, somebody in the family, and would be taken naked to the garbage dump or to some obscure, not-too-frequented spot where the baby would be left to die. At other times, if the baby wasn't wanted for a number of reasons, what they would do is they would pick that child up and they would clothe that child and they would put that child on a path that would be well-frequented, that would be well-traveled in the hope that that child would be picked up by a slave trader or even by the, uh, by the, um, by the Johns and the Pimps. This is basically what was happening with children in this part of the world. Now, that that is the case is borne witness to by a number of sources, but let me just bring up this one. This is a guy by the name of Justin Martha. Some of you may know him. He is one of the best leaders of the early church. He took the early church from a, from a, a group of about 50,000, some people will say, and led it so it came to the point of being millions by the time that Constantine uh, kind of favored Christianity. Look at what Justin Martyr says. But as for us, we have been taught that to expose newly born children, this practice of disowning the child led to the practice of what is called exposure or infanticide. Exposure is the term of taking a baby that was being discarded and laying it out in the open. That's exposure. But for us, we've been taught that to expose newly born children is the part of wicked men. And this we have been taught. Now remember, he's writing in the, in the, in the first, uh, first, second century, okay? We have been taught lest we should do anyone an injury and lest we should sin against God first because we see that almost all so exposed, not only the girls but the males, are brought up to prostitution. So this practice of exposure was common. The rights of the patriarch of the family to determine whether a child would be accepted or whether their child would be exposed either to death or to slavery and prostitution is something that the early church from the very earliest days of its infancy stood radically opposed to. Doesn't that change the way you view Matthew 18 a little bit? Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus goes and gets his child. And he doesn't just say, does he? Whoever humbles himself. He also says, whoever welcomes. Do you get the idea of what's going on here? There's a definite picture that Jesus is saying. He is speaking out against the practice of exposure and of infanticide. Now, I'm going to make a qualification here because I really sense that this is important. What I'm, what I'm sharing with you right now, and we'll go into the biblical text. I'm going to bring out some, some documents in the early church from AD 90, from 125. I'm going to show you how the early church viewed this text. It is going to challenge the way you view the world. 
Remember way back in week number one, we put on the virtual reality glasses and we can, we can so enter into a different world if we just stick to certain parts of the text. Just stick with Revelation. Just stick with Daniel. We're going to be in a heavenly world. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus deals with real world issues. He wants a real faith that is lived out in the real world dealing with real issues. And so he brings in a little child. And I'm mindful in going through this that there are some of you here who may have had abortions early on in your life. And some of the texts I'm going to put up make it very clear why the church that is biblical is rooted in the scriptures and is supported by the very early practices of the early church. And it may make you feel so guilty and so condemned. Where we'll end up in this message is God speaking a word of hope and a word of encouragement and a word of forgiveness to you. At the same time, I'm mindful that there are people in this room who have been trying for children for so long and haven't had any. And I'm going to talk about things that are just going to almost make you physically sick. Why, you can ask yourself, God? Do we, are we not able to have kids? And all this happens. At the same time, I recognize that there are people here who, who may well be waiting for the system to bless them with a child. And the system is just taking so long. And you're going to end up on the inside thinking, why can't it be like this today in reference to what they did years ago? Listen, there's no way that you can actually view the world in which Jesus lived when you see it and not understand the pain and start to ask some really hard questions. This world is broken. And proof of that is that we have always treated children, the weakest and the vulnerable, with a lack of respect. We don't in our world back then, and we don't today see kids the way that God does. When we listen to this, we ask ourselves, why on earth would somebody do this? When you dig into history, you see that there were six reasons why the patriarchs and families would do this. Firstly, harsh economic conditions. Famine was widespread at many periods of history. And for a poor family, Sometimes exposing their child in this way was a way that they could actually give their, chance, their child a chance to live in the hope that someone would pick them up and take them in and give them food and give them water, give them clothes and give them a trade. Harsh economic realities sometimes cause parents to do, families to do what we consider to be unthinkable. Second, the physical conditions of the child. Deformity. This idea that a child who is deformed isn't worth anything. And of course, we don't have that problem today, do we? Third, unconventional relationships. Incestuous relationships would often produce a child, 
and that child just wouldn't be welcome in the family. The child would be exposed. At the same time, there were often uh, people, men in positions of power, that would have relationships with people from lower socioeconomic classes, and then there would be a child as a result of that, and that child would be exposed. Unconventional relationships. Inconvenience. A Roman philosopher by the name of Musonius was exiled from the city of Rome in AD 65, so we're talking the early period of the early church, and he is on record, we can read his writings right now, of calling out the wealthy in society who treat children like an inconvenience and don't accept the responsibility of their actions. He calls this practice of exposure a wicked evil, and he was kicked out of Rome for doing so. AD 65. The next one, religious superstition in AD 19. So we're talking in the life of Jesus. There was a guy by the name of Germanicus, an official. He had a child, that child died, and in AD 19, it is on record as saying that many parents who had children in that year believed that year to be cursed and therefore exposed their children publicly. Religious superstition. Don't we have that today too? Religious practices that basically treat children with a lack of respect and a lack of self-worth. Labor needs. At certain points in time, especially during the expansionist period of the empires, what you would have is a high demand for labor, long-term labor. There was therefore the belief in some parents that the best way to provide for their child was to expose them because the needs for labor were so great that the children would be picked up from the street. You're getting the picture here. This is a pretty harsh reality. But the fact is, when Jesus says, whoever welcomes a child, welcomes me. Do you get an idea of what he's talking about? Doesn't this change the way you see the text? You can't view it the same way, can you? In case anybody's wondering, this word welcome does help us. It's there twice in that verse. The word dekomai means to accept, to receive, to take, to welcome. It speaks of asking a person to accept an offer deliberately and readily, to intentionally do something. It is a deliberate act. This word in the New Testament also supports this. It is used literally of things. It is used metaphorically of the kingdom of God, and it is used literally of receiving persons, accepting them into your heart and into your home. And what we see when we look at history is the Christians received, admitted, accepted, and welcomed people, children, the weakest, the most vulnerable into their homes. The letter of 1 Timothy, written to Timothy as he led the Ephesian church, a messed up church that ended up being one of the most well-taught churches in all of Scripture, extends this to widows, another category within society that would often fall through the cracks. In fact, Paul goes so far in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, to list out a disbursement criteria that basically told the church what they needed to do. 
Because the church were on record and were known for their lavish generosity to those people who were abandoned and fell through the cracks that the world started to milk the church in Ephesus. And so he lays down a criteria and he said, okay, only put widows on this list if this is true for them. Why? Because many people wanted to get on the list because the church's radical generosity transformed the city. Maybe you understand a little bit more then why James writes this. Micah referred to it last week. The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after the orphans and the widows. Look after those in distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Pollution by the world means you turn your back and your eye and you don't see the ones that God sees. Now, this is, would you all agree with me? This is a bit heavy. We need to lighten this up a little bit, right? So it was at this moment I thought, okay, I've got a really good idea here. I'm going to pose the, the congregation a riddle that they're going to solve. I was going to say, he's purple, he's big, and he's old. Who is he? And in that moment, I was going to get Barney, the purple dinosaur, to come out here. Okay? And I was going to get Barney to sing that song. I reckon most of us in this room could sing that song better than some of the songs we've sang up here. I hate that song. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it with a passion. Oh, I'm Welsh. And my daughter, who's now 22, when she was about 18 months to two years old, she loved Barney. She loved Barney. I hated it. It was so American to me back then. Sorry, folks. It's just like, it's so cheesy. <laughs> I hate this. But every night, I would have to sit by the side of her cot and I would have to put my finger out like this and she would hold my finger and I would just sing that song. I love you. You love me. You know how it goes, right? We're a happy family with a great big hug and a kiss from you to, you to me, me to you. Won't you say you love me? Too. I hated that song. <laughs> but I couldn't argue with the message, could I? Who can argue with that message? You see, it's true. Children respond incredibly well to reciprocal relationships of love. And so I thought, this would be a really great moment. Put Barney out on the stage, get him to sing the song. And then I go to the team and they say, Craig, you can't use Barney on the stage. I'm like, why? You let me use virtual reality glasses and, you know, kind of augmented reality glasses. Why can't I use Barney? Craig, this is Barney. I'm like, yeah, and I don't like him either. No, Craig, this is Barney. 1997 and all that. What, what do you want about 1997? Craig, Barney is a convicted child offender. Some of you are looking, really? Didn't know that. No, Barney is a dinosaur, but the third Barney on the inside in 1997 went down for five years for child offenses. Craig, you cannot use Barney. And I, I said, what? They said, Craig, the schools don't use Barney. Nobody talks about Barney anymore. Barney is blacklisted. He's not good for kids. And I'm like, guys, if we can't trust 
Bonnie, who can we trust? <laughs> and in that moment, it's as if the Spirit of God spoke into my heart and said, Craig, tell the kids that they can trust this church. I would love to be able to say they can trust the church. But can they? See, the more you dig into the history of the early church, the weak, the vulnerable, the despised, the rejected, the downtrodden weren't just loved by Jesus. They were loved by the church. They got the point, whoever takes in a child that's been discarded, abandoned, exposed, welcomes me, and the kingdom of God breaks through in their midst. You may not be sure, so let me just point out a couple of ancient texts for you. One of those texts is something called the Didache, which has been translated as the teaching of the apostles. This dates from about AD 90. Again, the, the early years of the early church, AD 90, and what was happening is the church had finally got to the point of realizing when Jesus said, go into all of the world, that they were supposed to go into all of the world. And so they would, in their congregations, there would be people who would be sensing a call to an itinerant ministry to go out in the towns and the villages like they, the disciples did in Matthew 10 and in Luke. And, and the church would commission them and set them apart and they would go out. And the early church didn't want them to go out and do what they wanted, so they provide them some kind of instruction. This instruction is written down, and we got the material, is written down in this book called The Teaching of the Apostles or the Didache. Look at what these evangelists were supposed to teach the Christians. Do not kill a child by abortion. The reason that the church today stands against abortion is because the church throughout history has always stood against abortion. Why? Because we always stand up for the rights of the weak and the vulnerable. In a day when people emphasize my choice, Jesus emphasizes I lay down my life for the sake of someone else. I've always done it. Do not kill a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. It's a, re it's a, it's a reference to exposure, to infanticide. Folks, this is common in the world. Don't do it. Well, why shouldn't we do it? Everybody else is doing it because, what? Because if you welcome the weak and the vulnerable, you welcome Jesus. Now, there's something more to this I'm going to show you in just a second. It goes on from there. Apology of Aristides. I love this. 8125, a guy by the name of Aristides wrote these words. They rescue, the Christians rescue the orphan from him who does violence. Aristides, a philosopher, a teacher, when the Emperor Hadrian was going to an ancient city, Aristides was chosen to give a speech. The title of the speech he was given was, which is the true religion? Which is the great religion? In this speech, Aristides goes through every religion of the world, of that ancient world at that point in time, and then he gets to the Christian, and he says, Emperor, if you want to look at the religion that is true, that is right in this world, look no further than the Christian, and here's why. And there's this big, long speech, and he says this, because they actually rescue the orphan. They rescue the ones that parents don't want. And they rescue them from him who does violence. You want to know how the Bible and the early church viewed those people that mistreated children? They were violent. They were violent. I could keep going, but Joni Gruber's done some research on this. Orphan care in the early church, this is what she says. Christians worked against infanticide by prohibiting its members from practicing it. 
voicing their moral view on infanticide to the pagan world by providing relief to the, for the poor. By the way, how do you think it was for the early church to view their view of morality to the world? Do you think it's any better than what it is today? No. It's never been popular to stand up for the rights of the weak and the vulnerable children, and it never will be. And actually taking in and supporting babies which had been left to die by exposure by their pagan parents. And as a result of this, hospitals specifically for orphans and poor children were built by Christians. Let me just say this. I really believe the solution for orphan for the orphan is not an orphanage. The solution for an orphan is for God to place them within a forever family. We don't need an institutional response to a relational issue. We need a relational response to relationships. We're into placing the lonely in families because that's what God is. But folks, there were so many of them that they had to build these places because they realized they welcomed the orphan, they welcomed Jesus. Now here's what we all know. Every healthy parent, every healthy parent has a God-given primal urge to care for their children. Would you all agree with that? Part of our challenge is we have a far lesser urge to care about children that are not our own. I'm not saying that in a condemnatory way, but anybody who's a parent would realize that that basic instinct is the way that this works. The problem is that there are today, just as there was back then, so many children whose primary caregivers have abandoned them. There are millions of children in this world whose primary caretaker, for a whole host of reasons, many of those, most of those very similar to the six that were true in Jesus' day, they aren't doing their job. As a result of that, millions and millions of children are living in crisis. Why? Same reasons apply, but let me emphasize two for you. Cheap labor. How's the rice and beans going, challenge going, folks? I hate rice and beans now. I love my chocolate, I love my ice cream, I have missed it, my waistline's probably feeling pretty good. I love chocolate. The only problem is 70% of the world's cocoa beans that are actually produced in West Africa were from Ghana and the Ivory Coast, and those are places that have historically violated and abused child labor laws. Our chocolate is a lot cheaper when you use cheap labor. It's still true. Exposing children through, the, through the, a, greedish, a greedy mentality is something that is as true today as it was in Jesus' day. It is also true. Religious superstition also ties into sexual exploitation. The sex industry today is still exploiting children. $30 a session, 25 to 48 sessions a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, nets 
the John in America between $150,000 to $200,000 per child. Now, I hope when we listen to this, we all believe, most of us believe, if you don't believe this, better not say anything about it, in here at least, <laughs> that something should be done. Right? Are we all in agreement with that? We, we can't let this go on. But again, the problem is, well, that someone isn't us. I really believe that a godly response from the church doesn't ask any of us to do what the Spirit of God isn't calling us to do. But quite honestly, it doesn't need it. Let me give you an example. There are 26 million double orphans in the world. That means they've lost both mom and dad. That's 17% of the orphan population have lost both. In America right now, we have 446,000 children in foster care, of which 112,000 need adoptive homes. In Michigan, that equates to 15,000 in foster care, and folks, there are 21,000 churches. You understand where I'm going at here? For the church to reclaim the mandate of the gospel and to reflect God's attitude in the world, we don't simply need, we're not necessarily calling for everybody to take in a foster child or to adopt, but we are calling every church to go back to the mandate that God gave the church. There is so much that we can do, so what do we need to do in response to this? I think if we want to change the, the world that we see, all of us has to choose personal responsibility. All of us have a part to play if we're a follower of Jesus, because in welcoming the weak and the vulnerable, we welcome Him. For some of you, that may well include being open to fostering and adopting. I believe that there is at least one person in this church to join the army of people who already have. But there is far more that we can do. And there is far more that as a church and as a Christian community, even in Holland, that we do. And so the second thing is, look, as you start to pray about this and wrestle this through, recognize that God will allow you and afford you an opportunity to match your responsibility with an appropriate opportunity. What we're asking you to do at this stage is simply pray. On April the 30th, we're going to just talk a little bit more about Mosaic and the ministry that we've got here that Micah referred to last week. All we would ask you to do right now is to change the way you see the world. When you go around and you see a children, remember what Jesus meant when he got his disciples to look at children. God, you want me to be the type of person who keeps my heart, my hands, and my home open for the weakest the most vulnerable people in society because you love them. Folks, be willing to do that. Pray, and as we get to April the 30th, God will make this clear to you. But there's something else here. Something I was very conscious of as we were going through this message and I was preparing for it. I'm challenging us to change the way we see the world in order to change the way we see children, not simply for us to do something about it, but also for this. When we change the way we see the children, we change the way we see ourselves. With all of this as background, 
I want you to journey with me to Ephesus. That church I referred to earlier that Paul wrote to Timothy concerning, instructing him what to do with the widows. This is a shot from the hillside down onto the theater with the roads that would be walking through. I want you to imagine with me Paul entering Ephesus on his second missionary journey. And as Paul entered Ephesus, he would walk along the roads and he would come past the garbage dump. And there as he walked past that garbage dump, there would be an incredible odor, but at the same time there would be children. He would go and he would minister to people. He would stay there for years. And and this church was a very messed up, very unique church. You see, in Ephesus, there was the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was a, a temple that had lots of temple prostitutes, hundreds of them. And as these prostitutes went about their trade, their ministry, a number of them would get pregnant. What do you think they would do with their children that they didn't want? They would expose them. What do you think the early church did with those children? went to the garbage dump and picked them up and brought them in. And then more and more of these women are starting to come to Christ and they're coming to church recognizing that one of these little kids may well be their own. And Paul goes through that place and he ministers passionately and faithfully to that place. And then a little while later, he writes them a letter, the book of Ephesians. And there in verses four and five, he says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And here we go. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Do you see this? When we change the way that we see children as God sees them, we change the way we see ourselves. There was an ancient gynecologist that if you're a gynecologist in here, you will have uh, almost certainly have heard of. His name was Saronis. He was uh, from Ephesus. He's known as Saronis, the Ephesian. He ministered gynecology in Alexandria in Egypt. He went on to Rome, and he wrote a manual guiding and instructing the midwives on how to care for newly born babies. It has been translated, I believe, by the Harvard Medical Department. It was that revolutionary at the time it was written. One of the chapters in there has this title, Saronis of Ephesus, how to basically measure a newborn baby to see if they are worth rearing. Right there in Ephesus, you have this idea that certain physical attributes, economic considerations, Everything was in there that determined whether a child should be kept. And as a result of that, many of the children were taken to that garbage heap in Ephesus and they were laid on the floor. And the early church went in and they picked those kids up and they brought them in. And as they did this, that place 
was transformed to the point where centuries later, a little while later, a guy by the name of Onesimus, very likely the, the Roman slave that Paul met that triggered the letter of Philemon, Onesimus came into Ephesus and built on Timothy's foundation and actually resulted in the temple cult of Diana, Artemis as part of that, being taken down. The church revolutionized what happened in that city by their willingness to go and pick up the kids and bring them in. But you imagine what it would be like for one of those women to go into the church and read these words. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Two things were going on there. The first thing is this. Paul and God wanted the church to know that whatever he asked them to do, he did first. We were adopted. In other words, the language is, realize this, that in Jesus Christ, God came to you in that garbage dump as you were, and he picked you up. And he brought you in, he held you close, and he brought you into a forever family called the church. Did you know that in the Roman world, there was a law that whatever, whenever a parent or a family picked up a child and rescued that child from exposure and adopted them, that family was forbidden from ever exposing that child again? Your own kids? Yeah, of course. An adopted child? Absolutely not. They were so safe. Think about what that also said to those people that had pasts that they really would love to be able to wipe clean. It said, folks, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you have done that will ever stop a father from loving his son and his daughter. We're going to go to communion right now. And we're going to go to communion on, on this basis. Recognizing that yes, there is a challenge for us to change the way that we see the world, change the way that we engage in the world, change the way that we engage with children but we do so knowing what our foundation is. God doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done for us. And if we change the way we see a child, in this moment, we can change the way we view ourselves. You may be here today, and you may be carrying so much weight on what you've done but this right here is God's way of saying, welcome my son, welcome my daughter. You may well be here, and you may well never have surrendered to the Father heart of God. You may well have always stood at a distance. This is a perfect opportunity for you to just take of the bread in a moment, take of the club, uh, cup, and just say, Father, I thank you that I have been cleansed through Jesus Christ. This is the moment where you come home, where God flings open his arms to you, and he welcomes you in and says, Son, daughter, you are clean. You are my child. So the ushers are going to come. As they do, they're going to distribute the elements, the bread and the cup. We're going to stay seated for this.
If you need gluten-free, there are gluten-free statements, uh, right. um, stations that are at the back. You can just go and grab some gluten-free for yourself. The same is the, the case in the balcony as well. There are gluten-free stations just behind the sound booth. The most important thing for you to remember is that as the bread and the wine uh, come to you in the cup, just take those when you are ready to do so. You don't have to wait for anybody else. This is a moment where you say, Father, I thank you that you see me as your son and your daughter. I thank you that because of Jesus Christ, you have cleansed me, you have changed me. My brokenness can be healed. My guilt can be removed. And I thank you that even though I was set to one side on a garbage heap destined for death, you came and you picked me up you brought me in and you brought me home so when you receive the elements take them when you're ready and thank God for what he's done because it really is true when you see change the way you see a child you change the way that God sees you God loves you and he says welcome home father we thank you for the truth of this moment for the loving compassionate incredibly generous love that you've lavished on us that we should be called children of God and the scripture says and that is what we are and so we celebrate that we celebrate that we have been cleansed that we've been changed that we've been forgiven we've been set free and we pray that as we take this cup and we eat this bread we would remember what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. It really is true. When you change the way you see a child, you change the world. And how does God want to change the world? Beginning right with us. My encouragement this week as you go about your life, as you see children, the weak, the vulnerable, that you would recognize first, this is how I was until God got a hold of me. But God brought me in and he made me a part of his family and I'm so safe, I'm so secure that it doesn't matter what comes against me, I will overcome. That's the good news of the gospel. At the same time, God is asking us individually to make a response. And we continue that as a faith family next week together as we take a second offering, the rice and beans offering, which enables us to continue to support those ministries that are doing incredible work across the world. So as you have saved your cash in just eating simply on a subsistence diet, bring that back next week. And as I just open the word and talk about the church, I believe that God will do a great work through us. Folks, thanks for being here today. We pray that as you leave here today, you will know that you are sons and daughters of the King. You've been set free from guilt, sin, and shame. Go live in the freedom of Jesus. Have a great week. God bless you. See you next week.